0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I am one half of Wannabe Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig.
1: Hello, Jess. I am Craig Campbell, and I am the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I make games, too. And uh, we are here once again with repeat offender returning guest, um, (laughs) Sebastian. Hi. Thanks for joining us.
2: Hi! Thank you so much for having me. I am Sebastian. I am a full-time game designer at Hitpoint Press. These days, I make many games. Some of them mine, also.
0: Awesome! Thank you for coming back. And thank you. We are. Uh, we have a a weighty topic with a lot of options today, Craig. <laughs> Craig, what are we discussing with Sebastian?
1: Oh, we're looking into GMing where you're playing a game that has uh, where you're going to be dealing with high level characters and slash or characters that have a lot of options available to them. As we um, all know, those of us who have played a variety of games, there are games that are simpler and you're, you're the focus of the game is narrower there's very specific things that the game is trying to do and then there's games where you like you can do so many different things and then there's like spells and magic items and you know, psionic powers and superpowers and cyber tech and you know other gear and like you could you can get weighted down very quickly as, uh, as a player uh, with all of these options and we sometimes as players run into something that i think a lot of people refer to as analysis paralysis where you're trying to figure out what's the thing to use what's the right choice to make in this moment in the game um, and what can we as GMs do to help to deal with all of that to kind of help ease it that that situation for ourselves when GMing because it's a lot for us to keep track of and obviously that's also a lot for players to have to keep track of if you've got a lot of options available to you.
0: Sebastian why do you choose this topic?
2: Um, Just because it actually does not necessarily come up all too often because I don't really see many high-level games in that way. So I was interested to see. Uh, also, like, I'd be interested to hear about like what, how, um, what would you define as a high-level character?
1: Oh, there's a loaded question.
0: What do you think, Craig?
1: Um, well, I mean, given that there's so many different games, um, that do different progressions of things, I mean, I would, I would argue that in general perhaps once you hit like the midpoint of the progression of a character you know that's you know 10 levels out of 20 or getting to like with with character with with games that have like character point builds where you could you could ostensibly just keep going and going and just spending points and spending points there's kind of a if if you if you look if you do the math there's kind of a Upper end where it's like, okay, now you're really kind of maximized out on all this sort of stuff, and there's not too much farther to go. So where's that midpoint for that? It's usually when you start to hit the abilities that are pretty significant. Like, you know, you can bend character, you can bend NPCs to your will. You can kill characters outright because then um, and and obviously you just have a lot of different options. Like there's just a lot of different ways to do a lot, a lot of different things. So I think that players oftentimes, when it comes to analysis paralysis, it's partly um, the number of options that they have, but then it's like what those options are. This is like, I've got this ability that I can only do one time today, or maybe one time ever. Is it the right time to use that thing now? Like, it's like, it's, if it's a combat thing, it's like an instant kill if I get lucky and they fail their saving throw, or I hit with my attack roll, or whatever or do i want to save that and use something that is going to be just like it'll you know i'll attack and do some damage and we'll prolong you know the combat will continue and so forth you know do i want to risk using these these uh, l- more limited resources or or possibly finite resources when you start to see a lot of that in play that that's where it starts to feel kind of high level and complex to me
0: yeah i think the issue to focus on here is not necessarily how strong these characters are because you know, sometimes strength actually doesn't matter in a game depends on the game you're talking about. But I think when we're talking about like what Craig said, the amount of options that are available to a player and how can you keep that from turning your game into molasses and overwhelming (laughs) all of your players, especially like, like, I think that even comes into play with leveling. If you're deciding you want to start, like if you have a whether your game starts off with a lot of options from the jump or um, you are starting your game at an, like you have a game that progresses and you're starting your game, you're skipping all these early progressions and now they have to make all of these decisions at once. It is a lot of work and it's a lot of cognitive load for your, for your players to go through and also for you to go through as the GM to kind of guide them through that process. I mean, I've even seen it happen at conventions with games where the players don't even have that many options, but they're creating their character at the table with a playbook. You put 12 playbooks in front of them, and you're trying to get to the, to the game because you have a four-hour slot at this convention, and a half hour later, you're still going to have someone who is struggling to make a decision unless you tell them pick one. So what are we going to do with these people?
2: Uh, I think in terms of the playbook, uh, specific example, um, one of the things that I like about Powered by the Apocalypse playbooks is that they'll have a section on you know uh, how to play this playbook and like a bit of information about like what like a breakdown of what the abilities are designed to do, and so it gives you a sense if you read that um, of the kinds of actions that you can take in and the moves that you can take in the game. So um, including that kind of thing in your design is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Spire does it as well. It has a section that's like, oh, play this class if you want to do X thing, like upfront about it, which I find helpful.
0: Oh yeah. I love that. And that is a great way to, especially like a good way to introduce new players to games that are pretty crunchy to Like, oh, have a little spiel. Like this is what the warlock does. This is what your battle droid does, whatever <laughs> it is. I think For me, like especially for a convention game, I also, even if there are playbooks that have very clear defined rules, I don't give them all the options necessarily. I will let them pick from a a slight range of options. That's something that also helps me in teaching to give my students, well, do you want to do this or this? Instead of saying, what do you want to do? Helps them be more confident in their choice, first of all, and also kind of speeds up the process when you're in a limited Time period. I don't think that that's as much of a problem when you're not limited by time. But for me, like when I was starting to play D&D, gosh, it took me forever to decide what I wanted to do. We would, we would spend hours just creating characters that we might have played for three games before getting bored and doing something else.
1: <laughs> I found that, you know, running on the assumption that as the GM, you're... St- somewhat at least of an expert in the game that you're going to be running you're familiar with where the the bumps might be um or even if you're relatively new you might be able to just extrapolate where those bumps might be and kind of owning that with the group and owning that and making it clear to the players that here's the situation with with what we're you know what we're going to see in the game and what we're going to see with certain types of characters and talking you know like like we, we, we might be seeing a lot of magic items. So everybody's going to have a whole bunch of things that they can do beyond what their character class says. I once in a game had um, a player who is fairly new, who had only played like a little bit. This is a DD and d game, third edition. I had only played a little bit of, of D&D, but she became enamored with playing a bard. And I said, I just, I talked to her at the beginning of everything. I said, that's cool. Play a bard, but be aware. Bards are not too bad at fighting. They've got a bunch of skill stuff. They've got spells. And then there's gonna be magic items and that sort of stuff down the road. So the character is going to become more complex than what you've dealt with in the past pretty quickly. Um, and uh, you know, just kind of impressed upon her to read the whole class, <laughs> like become familiar. Like, you know, there there are players who ab- absorb and devour all every rule. They read it over and over, they really get into it. And then there's some that like, I've got the gist of it, and then we'll learn um as we go. Um but if, you, if if a player is looking to play something that's going to become complex in the short term or even in the long term, um, I think it's it's worth being just, you know, kind of pointing it out and saying, okay, you know what you're getting into, right? You know, you're playing Shadowrun and you're going to play, a, you know, a, the, the tech guy, the tech, you know, the character that's going to have like the right tool for the job. Well, you know, we need, you need to make sure you know what all your equipment does. You're going to have the right tool for the job. We don't, you know, we, we want to keep it moving and keep, and keep everybody happy and you not feel pressured and nervous. So like, just try to be up to speed on like, you've got like 30 pieces of equipment that you can pull out of your pocket. And if, if the player is amenable to that, and hopefully that if, if that's the type of character that they want to play, they're probably geared toward like, okay, I'm going to try to get on board and really know what's going on here. But, um, I, f- I've found that useful as a GM to just like give them a little bit of fair warning. Like I, I see this getting complex. What strategies do you use sebastian
2: yeah um i think that it very much comes down to like the kind of vibe that there is at the table actually um my experience is that most of the gms that run the games that i am in uh tend to be also new to the game and so um it's a process of learning how to do it co- like collaboratively so i don't necessarily expect that the GM is going to be an, an expert i think that the expectation might be slightly different if it is at um at a convention as you said so i do think that like Um, having like pre-generated characters even is useful for a convention because then you don't have to do character creation and you can just have the instructions that are on the sheet and also just things like kind of flagging that the game is for maybe like intermediate experience with this game or this is like an introductory game that kind of stuff.
0: I, I think definitely not expecting that everyone needs to be the expert or giving them the tools for quick reference I think is like a super necessary yeah. strategy
2: <laughs> yeah definitely um like recently i played legacy which is a pbta game and uh, i ordered the book and i also ordered the like the, there's a box of handouts that you can get and so it's just um like quick reference cards and that really helped me learn how to play the game
0: oh it's, i i love a reference card that's great yeah yeah
1: it's useful to 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 look at it from that perspective too like what does the game prepare for you for that sort of thing like there are games that are, that tend to be newer, more recent, more contemporary in design. And so they, they provide a lot more of that stuff. And then there's like some older school games where it's kind of like, well, here's a book Um, (laughs) and you have to kind of prepare a lot of that stuff for yourself or the player has to do the prep. So being aware of what the game kind of comes packaged with
2: and, um, Um, and beginner
1: sets, yeah, Um, even, (laughs) even for the more complex games, the beginner sets often come with those types of tools.
2: I'd say so. Um, I also like that there are kind of starting, um, digital tools are starting to become more prevalent. So there are things like character keepers um, specifically designed for the system that you're playing. Um, I find those are very helpful too.
0: Uh, Yeah, definitely. And just all, there are all sorts of supplements, I guess, resources that you could use as tools to help support a more complex game. People like to play these complex games where they do have a a lot of options. It makes them feel like, I don't know, for me, as a player, when I play a game like that, I feel like I have way more customizability with my with my character. I have I can problem solve in in more creative ways, uh, but I also have a lot of experience now playing games, so I know I know kind of like what dead air feels like as a GM. So I try to make my decisions quick. I try to plan plan for my moves ahead of time if I'm like in a turn based kind of situation. Because of course, analysis paralysis can happen outside of the mechanics too. Like, oh, I don't know what I want to say to the big tree who's talking to me right now. <laughs> like, I don't know, but it's different when everyone is waiting for you because so many TTRPGs are turn based in certain situations. And now, like, the pressure is on to make a move, and that pressure makes it harder to make a move because what if you select the wrong one? Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think yeah, I think as a GM um it kind of it Mostly would come down to being familiar with what your players are capable of doing, and then coming up with situations that allow them to use the abilities that they have. I think that like you could design something specifically that is geared to um, be solved in a certain way, but I also find that there's a lot of freedom in just designing a problem and not necessarily coming up with a solution and just seeing what the players come up with, because assumedly these players are, um, have chosen these characters for reasons, and they want to engage with the abilities and mechanics that they have, and sometimes. Yes. It's- it's just fun to let them just go wild with it. And then they end up coming up with solutions that I'm just like, oh, I gave you maybe three options in my mind, but you picked a fourth one. Okay, cool. Like, let's see.
0: It sounds like sort of letting go of your expectations and your control of the situation to let the players have fun and not just to get the next thing that you wanted to do. Yeah, pretty much.
1: Yeah. So S- just- Sebastian, you beat me to it. I was going to be talk I was going to mention like if it's if the if the characters are going to be more complex or they're going to become more complex as you play and this this just ties into what you were saying, which is it's kind of hard to plan for every possible contingency. So outline be kind of prepared in general for some things, but then be ready to roll with it and and you know use it to exer- give it a, give it a, the opportunity to exercise your improvisation skills because if the player group amongst them, has 50 different cool things they can do. Good luck trying to predict which one they're going to, to pull out, to deal with problem a or problem B. So yeah, you just have to react a lot of times. Um, and that's, that also like, from my, from my experience personally, that that's one of the more rewarding times, um, GMing is when you can take a step back and just like, let the players surprise you.
2: Yeah. That's one of my favorite things to do is just say yes to whatever it is they're suggesting. Like if it's if it's reasonable and not entirely game breaking and it's fun for everybody, that's my inclination.
0: I've also I'm kind of iffy on this particular strategy, which is the opposite end of the spectrum, by giving an actual time limit for the players to make a decision. You can do that within the narrative, like ah yeah you don't make this decision now, the water, the sand is going to rise and that's going to be terrible for you. Or like actual in the game, like you have you have 30 seconds to make your choice about what you're going to do on, on your move and then move on. Um, I don't think that that strategy, that second one works for everybody. I think that that can make a mess out of things and should only be a strategy used when everyone kind of is in agreement that yeah, we do want to speed decision up a little bit. And you kind of need that. Uh, I I, th- I just think that that's possibly one you could put in your toolbox, but to use it very carefully. That's the chainsaw yeah. of tools. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an option. I think it depends on whether your table is highly into strategy and tactical play versus if they want to take the time to talk it out
0: as a party and formulate a plan. Yeah, some people like that. Some people yeah, like to some like, people spend. Some people really like that. Mm-hmm and some games are designed for that specifically too and you don't want to take away that part of the fun of the game but if you're playing if you're playing a game that is not net meant to be focusing on combat but it turns out you're spending you know half of your time on on combat every single time well there is something for you to reevaluate as the gm because why are you throwing so much combat at them but also something to reevaluate as, as a table like do you guys like spending this much time how can we come up with a solution
1: or, or to be fair, maybe the players are just picking fights more often than you were expecting. That <laughs> <Right>. too. <laughs> maybe you, you, need you to might have gone it. in thinking this was going to be a talky, <laughs> uh, political game, and but the players want to whoop some butt.
0: Yeah, the players um, decided your NPC has a very punchable face, and they don't even know what he looks like. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs>
1: um, with with games that have a lot of source books and supplements. That can get wild very quickly at a table. I've been there with like D and D and pathfinder and things, whether you've got a lot of source books, something to consider. I had a GM that did this once It actually worked fairly well for that group. We were all cool with it, which was, um, you get the core book and one supplement to build your character from. So you wanna theme something towards something that's in a supplement, well, okay. Utilize that supplement to the best of your ability, use spells and abilities and cool things from, you know, gear or whatever from that supplement, but don't show up at the table, you know, cause you know, if you don't, if, 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 if a player doesn't know everything by heart that their character has on their character sheet, then there's a lot of time spent flipping through books and remembering which book it's in. And and keeping track of all of that, you got to almost have like a bookkeeping thing on your character sheet. It was like this: this ability is in this, you know, book <laughs> on this page. So you're, you know, uh, but I had I had a team who did that to to great effect. That's an option. It kept it kept the the book, you know, the page flipping from getting too outlandish.
0: I think that's a really common strategy, and that also ties into what Sebastian suggested with like the extra resources and journals and things that can make make that resource tracking a lot easier. You could go old school. You know, um, I don't know. I made my students do this when I was doing research papers with them, but I did make them write down their source and what they were taking from their source on an index card. You can you can implement that same strategy. You, you took this move from this book, put it on an index card, write down what page it was on so you have the full reference later if you need it and write down all the relevant information you need. You know, paraphrase it, whatever you need. And keep that with you. And then you can flip through and it can be labeled a ah, super, super powerball attack where you throw lottery cards at somebody, whatever it is, and flip through, find it, be able to use it without having to open a book, which takes time. No one. I don't like that moment. I don't like the moment where I have to open the book and be like, okay, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> let me Let me read this rule.
1: Yeah, especially if the rule is complex, if it's like more than. Three sentences to describe how something happens. Boy, I've I've been I've been in some games where people, you know, they, they their wizard took a spell and then you, they, like I know what the spell does. That's fine. And then they got into like using it, and they had to go open up the book, and I was like, okay, that's fine. And then it was one of those spells that had like it was a full column of text, <laughs> you know, like the you know it was it was a mind control thing that had all these contingencies about how it functioned, and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, and that's okay. Um, to deal with that, uh, one, once or twice is okay. But like, ideally the if somebody's going to be using something like that, they, you know, find a way, like you said, with Sebastian, like, you know, find a way, paraphrase it for yourself on an, uh, or encourage the players as the, you know, as the GM to paraphrase how it works on a note card or, or spend the time to really kind of absorb it. If it's something that you expect, you'll be using all the time. Oh, and we talked about this plenty of times, Jess too. Sometimes there's a player at the table who knows the game inside and out, and they're a resource. And so you don't have to know all the rules for every little thing, but you might have somebody at the table who like knows how every superpower works. And so like, let the players know, say, Hey, you know, like if you're thrown by something like in between turns, when it's not your turn, those, you can have a little confab over there and double check how this weird superpower works with the person who is the expert.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I kind of forgot that that was even an issue just because all of my games these days are online. So um, it takes significantly less time for me to look up something for reference. If I know where to find it, I can search for it. Yeah,
0: oh, yeah, that's part. that's a great thing about online games, too, especially if they're already like developed and you can just click on links even within the virtual tabletop. Um,
2: yeah, or if I have a PDF, I can control F. It takes so much less time to app. find the to find the section that I need. um than it does if I'm flipping through a physical book at an in-person table.
1: Yeah, well, I'm not playing so much at a physical table anymore, but I did for a long, long time. And so I've seen plenty of the slow (laughs) flipping through the books, trying to find stuff. Yeah, Yeah,
2: I think that's probably part of the reason why I'm more um, inclined to embrace more options just because I usually, um, like for the game that I'm GMing, I said you can use things from any source book you want. Also, if you want to homebrew your own stuff or if you want to use third-party content, just let me know about it because um, if there's a thing that you want to do that really excites you, then I think you should be able to do it.
0: I agree. Like, almost always, I will agree with that. There are very specific circumstances where I will tell a player, like, we can't be doing this. And that's when I have, I literally have four hours to spend with you before I never see you again in my life. We got to get this done. But I, I I, always think that character creation is one of the most interesting parts of, of gameplay and leveling up your character because your character is your, your point of contact into this world and you want it to be a person that you enjoy inhabiting and you want it to be a person who has a lot of options or creature or animal or robot or whatever you're playing, you know, you, why, why would you want to limit yourself in a world that is super rich that your GM is creating for you? If, if I want to give my players as many options as I have for my NPCs, I want them to be able to steal stuff from my NPC ideas. They fought this really cool boss. Go ahead and take one of their power moves. Here's where I got it. All of that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I just think that like time management is a, is a real thing. And when you are, when you are playing at a table um, with a bunch of busy adults, or even online with a bunch of busy people who have lives and, you know, you only need to meet up in, in a certain amount of time, you want to make sure that that time at the table is golden and it's being spent like gold and not being spent on downtime that people don't want to spend it on.
1: Yeah. and only you listener gm knows what your kind of what what your table is going to be like what your uh, players are going to be like and what you're personally willing to deal with um so it's it's always kind of a question of of finding the middle ground that will serve everybody without making it unfun for anybody and that includes you
0: yeah if no one has a problem with it it's not a problem <laughs> yep <laughs> <laughs> What about because Sebastian? You talked a little bit about like you've used the word design throughout this conversation. Do you see any any like actual game design advice for a GM um, that can be used, or any game design advice for a designer that can be borrowed from what strategies you might take as a GM? Kind of transitioning to our design topic in this nebulous third area here. <laughs> Does that question make sense? What I asked you.
2: Um, sorry, you are, you're asking if there's any kind of like design strategy that can be extrapolated from the techniques that you would use as a GM. You you phrased it
0: better than I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think that
2: if um, if your players are having trouble, like um, with a lot of the mechanical aspects of the moves and their and their options, I think that if you have a GM who is very um, well versed in game design, I think that there are ways for them to to offer to be like, oh, how can I make this easier for you to remember? How can I make this easier for you to use in uh, in the game? Part of it might just be presenting. The challenges at the table in a different way, and um, it could also be like I'm going to homebrew a solution and hack this move a bit to make it uh, to to make it more usable. I guess like if it's a thing that a player really wants to do, but they're struggling with it for whatever reason, I think that um, that you know there's always something you can do about that.
0: I think it's something definitely to, especially if you're designing a game when you're in that playtesting process. Like, what is what are those sticking points there, and then using them in that way to improve your game to hack your own game so the yeah. final project is is what you want it to be now, my pre- favorite stage is playtesting <laughs> yeah I mean it's fun it's like one of the it's a very creative process it's it's collaborative in the all the ways that we like gaming <laughs> to be and uh you actually get to see your your creativity in action at that point It's very fun. Craig, you said you're in the middle of designing a a game like this. And you said that this topic was, it came right at at the right time for you. What are you thinking?
1: Yeah, it's the, uh, like, uh, some of the games that I've designed lately over the past few years have been like playbook oriented games where you've got like a two page, two, you know, uh, six by nine playbooks that kind of describe everything about the character. Like, you know, you could print it all out on one eight and a half by 11 page and that's your whole thing or you can have it on your screen you don't have to go looking for a bunch of stuff it's like all the abilities all the cool things that your character can do are defined there as long as you know the basic rules right and I've been toying around with the idea of a more complex game Um, and it's going to be a game that while it doesn't focus on combat it's going to deal with combat in a more you know in a way more akin to some of the traditional games that that get into fighty stuff but I'm I'm toying with like the way to present a lot of options that your character can have in such a way that those options will all end up on your character sheet. So you don't have to flip through the book ever to find how how this ability works. And it has to do with looking at like, you know, fighting maneuvers and other abilities and features of the character class and spells and things and finding a template that kind of allows them all to function mechanically similarly, where you're spending points to do the really cool things, but then you have features of what that are just things your character can always do. Um, and you' and it doesn't make a difference if you're martial a martial type character or if you're a spellcasting character, or if you're a sneaky skilly skill 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 based character. there's there's some simpl- there's some similarities between what's happening so that you can actually create like a playbook that's partly f- filled out. You know how like in, in PBTA games, you got playbooks that have like all these unique abilities that describe like, and as you gain them, you check, you got a little checkbox, like, poof, now I've got that thing. And it's, it describes it right on the playbook. What, like what that thing is, right. Um, Is having something like that, where, for example, you can play, and I'm using generic terminology, you can play a pyromancer and you've got a pyro, you've got two character pages. The first character page is the one that everybody has. It has all your, ability scores and your skills and your hit points and all your descriptive stuff and pools of points that you can spend and all that stuff, right? Your species or folk or whatever you're playing, your background, all that, your history. And then the other one is your character page. And for example, for a pyromancer, you'll have like, okay, here's a couple of features that a pyromancer can do. And then here's a handful of fire spells you know, pyromancery things that might be strict strictly specifically fire, but also might be like, like related to fire, like making the air shimmer around you to, def, you know, to make you harder to see because heat makes the air shimmer, right? Um, and having these things on the sheet, but then other spots that are open and there's just blank spots with little checkboxes and little fields for you to fill in that you can put other spells and abilities and things into that you choose from a larger list. So once you've progressed your character, you pick that thing. Well, now my character knows this spell or this can can use this ability. You put it on that page and as you progress, you'll fill this thing up with some of the stuff that was there to begin with for your class um, and then other things that you choose and add to it Um, and getting that all onto one page. But it requires being very succinct with your language. And it requires templating things similarly so that it all, like you don't, I I mean, you can have all the different types of classes work a little differently. There are games out there that do that where like each of the classes has like their own mechanics or, or, you know, some variation on the mechanics, but I've been, I've been challenged by (laughs) finding a way to codify all of that into a system that like, okay, this, this will work. Like you, this feels like all these cool spells. And then this page over here kind of functions the same way, but it feels like cool maneuvers that a fighter can take. So that's the description without getting into the nitty gritty and details, which start to get boring unless you, you know, are actually the designer.
0: <laughs> I'd play that.
1: <laughs> so I'm working on it.
0: I mean, a good character sheet, because you mentioned pages and stuff, you know, like designing a character sheet, like that's one of the most important tools you can design as a game designer to make handling a lot of options very easy, Uh, really thinking about how they're going to be used at the table. It's, it's such a necessity, because that is, that is their main reference sheet at that point, if that's what you're going to be using in your game, and making sure that it's usable and functional to in the way that will increase the enjoyment of their game and that's it's hard it's got it gosh it's so hard um and there's a reason why some people hire hire their own character sheet designers but it's it's of utmost
1: importance it's definitely something to keep in mind i had i ran into that with capers um originally created a a single character sheet i was like oh this game is going to be pretty straightforward you're gonna and here's a spot for two powers so in all your other character stuff right it's all on one sheet and then you know played the game some more and other people played and people came back and it's like i you know a lot of people have more than two powers (laughs) so we created a second character sheet that is just nothing but spots to put powers um, with a couple other little things and and you know put that up on as you know part of the pdf package to download the character sheet for free. So now you can do that um, because it was, a, it was something that the game needed, but I didn't realize it at the outset and we had to solve it. Um, but if you can try to think about all of that sort of thing in advance, which is what I'm dealing with right now with this other design is to give thought to what your character sheet's going to be and how that interfaces with the game and how, You know, what I'm hoping for is a game that has a lot of options, a lot of things you can do, but it's going to minimize the analysis paralysis because it's all in front of you. You don't have to go looking for it. And it's all succinct. Fingers crossed.
0: (laughs) I, for the means of magic, we, everything's completely like whatever move you make, what they're all based on skills. Skills are all learned the same way. Each thing can be used in whatever you're trying to do. But we tell you. And we have a spot for you right on the character sheet. Like come up with a couple of go-to moves that you can pull on when you just need to say something, when you just need to do something. Cause just like in real life, like I have all these options I can do in real life, but I have a couple of go-to moves. I even did that in <laughs> judo. Like in judo, you learn a bunch of 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 moves that you can make in in uh in you know your your fight for lack of a better word. It's not really a fight. Sparring. In, yeah, you have a lot of moves you can make. You have a couple go tos, um, but you have all these options. But if you are struggling to think of the move you're going to make, you're not. You're not gonna have a great time. You're gonna be on your back. In a second, Sebastian, have you ever designed a game where there were a lot, a lot of options for people?
2: Um, I haven't designed my own uh, original system game, but uh, I really do like enjoy. Uh, like I really do like designing playbooks and uh, subclasses and things like that. Um, I like to. I like to kind of think about what the core of the um like the, the the playbook is supposed to do and um come up with like various moves that kind of embody that kind of
0: character. Do you have any good examples of that?
2: Uh well right now I'm working on a playbook for um for Apocalypse Keys. Um I can't say to you too much about it. Um it's called The Untethered. Um, it is supposed to be like like your power as a monster is supposed to be very um, manipulative and um <laughs> um very uh, like emotionally unavailable I don't really know how else to phrase that but um basically it has a bunch of ways for you to resist um having to show your hand essentially and uh, a bunch of ways that you can resist hitting what it, uh what mechanically is called your breaking point
0: and what kind of strategies do you implement in one of these playbooks to kind of guide the player to to navigate all these options uh, yeah, I
2: mean I, because this one is um also powered by the apocalypse, it's going to have the playing mm. the the untethered section also because it's I have a few moves that are designed if you want to um engage more with the roleplay side of things than with the combat side of things and some of them are more um here is a move you can do while you're fighting kind of thing because uh, I I've uh, it's been my experience that different players want to do more role play and different players want to do more combat. So um, it's not expected that you t- that you end up with like the whole list of moves um, until um, later on in the in the in the game. So um, I think that having those kind of different f- areas of focus is important.
0: That's what I really like about the power powered by the Apocalypse games. like I had mentioned earlier, I love that in the playbooks, typically they're going to have a section that says, play this if you want to blah, 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 or even yeah. comparisons like think like this is, this is the pilot. Think Han Solo. Think this. Here are some cultural comparisons um, or some pop culture comparisons. And there's no reason you can't as a game designer steal that for your own stuff. <laughs> Why not? That is something that works so well and is such a good way to direct people's attention to the instead of having them like be overwhelmed by all this text and all of these even on a playbook there are so many options little checkboxes everywhere how are you ever going to decide oh it's actually very simple cuz it is all laid out it's very straightforward and like you said sebastian just because you pick one option now doesn't mean you can't change it later and i think i think the the lack of permanency can be like removing permanency from your game like you're able, like putting it in the rules, like you're able to change if you want to, can help in a lot of ways, make the decisions when you're building your character. To, I, I, I'll I fail seven times and I'll be able to take this move again. It's okay. I will be cool. I will be able to do this really cool, creepy monster thing later.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, kind of reusability is a thing that we that that uh, that I've been thinking about in terms of that. Just because I mean, it's supposed to be a move that you can that you can repeat. Um, there's gonna there's supposed to be one that uh, is designed for the end game, and it says in the rules text that like yeah, you can use this move once, and so you do get into like that kind of territory of when is the best time to use it. But um, specifically during what is called like the final mystery, at some point you're supposed to use that, so that is flagged.
0: That's good. I mean, that's a good way to limit it for your. the problem of my once daily, I have to use it, but I'm going to save it up. I'm going to save all these Phoenix downs until I really need them. And then you never use them, but giving that time period for when, okay, don't use it here. Here is your much more limited amount of time to use it. I love that. And is that, is that a thing from Apocalypse Keys or is that part of the design so I honestly haven't oh, read yeah, through yeah, all that's, the text. Yeah, that's yeah.
2: uh that's part of a thing for for apocalypse keys. Like some of the playbooks have final mystery moves and like at the introduction to those, um, it says that you can give them access, uh the players access to them right away. Some of them are a single-use thing. Um, it's it depends on like what kind of serves your character and what serves the narrative and like what serves your kind of play style. how you do that really.
0: That's so sick. I love that.
2: That's <laughs> really cool. That's a really good design point right there. Everyone should take notes. Yeah, like I didn't th- I didn't think of that one, but uh, it's a very cool feature of the game that I'm working on.
0: Yeah. I think that would really work in a, also something like that could work really well in a game that has very clearly defined like narrative touchstones, like oh, this is act 1 of of your game session or like you can if it's a mystery, you can use this move during the reveal, giving a specific a much more specific um timetable helps. It would help me for sure, as someone who is very indecisive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I could see that sort of thing working fairly well with a, uh, any game design that has a, a fairly defined loop of, of phases that a given game goes through, where you see, you, you don't always see this in, in all games, but there's certainly quite a few that do have them. It sounds like Apocalypse Keys is one of them, that there's like kind of a point in time in the story where you are in another phase and it just, there's a term on it, you know, there's a term for it. Is that, is that fair to say, Sebastian?
2: Um, Like generally it's, it'll be like kind of uh, like a series of mysteries that your character needs to solve. And so um, it really like the final mystery move just is one for like the kind of conclusion of the story.
1: Right. <laughs> but I could see, right. Okay. So I'm just making sure I'm following that, but I could see like that sort of approach working well for, um, you know, a heist kind of game where you've got phases of yeah. like, you get the job, you you do your research, you go on the job, and then there's the aftermath. And you've got these things that your character can do. And if you're like the, like, let's say you're the mastermind social, or you're the social character, the character that's going to talk your way through a lot of problems, like maybe you might have an ability that like, it's, you can use it, you have to spend points to use it, you know, elsewhere in the game, or, you know, you have some sort of limitation, there's like something about it. But then it also says, and you can always use this one time, if you're caught at the end, like at one at the end the mouth gets the chance to get everybody out of trouble um just because that's a trope of of heist stories and it would be a shame if the the social manipulator didn't have a chance to get somebody you know get everybody out of trouble um just by talking their way out of it at the end if things go bad
0: I think that there's a way that you could also embrace the analysis paralysis and kind of bring it back into the tone and mood of your story in general like yeah you have this final power move or you have any move and you never know when to use it and you could you could add a mechanic into the game that like oh if every every session you don't use this here's what happens here's a either a consequence could be good could be bad and that Mm can be part of the thematic element of your game too
2: yeah that's very cool i hadn't
0: thought of that one actually
1: just off the top of my head too like a buyback or not, well, a free buyback, free, free, free return, free, uh, freebie, I guess, where you've got like, you know, any abilities that you have that are limited in nature over the course of the game. But then among those abilities that are limited in nature, like at this certain phase in the game, you can always use it. You can always use one of them here at, for this particular phase. So like that puts players in the position of like, well, I don't feel so bad about using this ability now, even though it's a one-shot use, because I know I still have it in my pocket if I need it here.
0: Yeah. Also, in 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 Means of Magic* too, we have you have the ability to not use a move yet, but use it kind of on the fly, and then add it to your sheet. You always get one of those during a during the point between level up and level up. So if it turns out you needed something after all, you can just use it. But that fills up your slot for that skill that you would have otherwise gained. Uh,
1: stealing that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. It's a good
1: one. Cool. <laughs> like, you don't have to level everything up.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: got, you know, like in in my in the thing I'm working on. Like, when you when you level up, you gain two things. Well, you gain a bunch of things, but there's two important choices that you make, and like you can put it in there. Like, you get these two things, and you don't have to pick one right now.
0: I I like that. You can, style. Cho- you can
1: choose that somewhere in the middle of of this next level that you're playing out. Like, you suddenly decide, oh, my character really needs to be able to do this thing.
0: I like so that style not, so a lot. It's They figure very, it out right now. It's very like superhero or anime style like yeah. like you don't know the true power that you can unlock until you've unlocked it. Like oh, the your 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 friends are in trouble and now you're going to make this one last final desperate move that you had no idea that you could do. I don't know. I like I like moments like that in in shows and movies and video games even. Um,
1: the, al- the alternative to that is for the player to have to choose what that thing is going to be and then sit on it <laughs> until the dramatically appropriate moment, which doesn't necessarily always come, or maybe it's not as, as dramatic as you'd like. And you finally just want to get the thing out there, um, because you haven't been using it. Whereas this is, <laughs> this is a perfect solution to be like, yeah, just make it happen when it happens. And that way you've got the options. Like, you don't know what the next adventure is going to be what the next story is going to be like you might you might suddenly realize that being able to uh, create electricity out of nowhere is incredibly useful
0: <laughs> what about designing your supplements like those resources that sebastian had mentioned in the gm section what are what about what are some tips that we could take as game designers to include resources like that are there any that people should be incorporating into their games that were not? Uh, sorry, could you rephrase that? Yeah. So we, we mentioned like journals to keep track of your, your character skills or reference cards. Are there tools like that that people should be using more often and then actually directly incorporating into their game design that might help with managing all of these options?
2: Um, yeah, I like games that come with, uh, kind of quick reference sheets, um, and like kind of cheat sheets for like the basic moves, um, and such like, uh, I also would like to see more digital support, but I do know that that is kind of time consuming and not necessarily in the area of game design that you're getting into like, um, know, web development and stuff at that point. But, uh, it is something I would like to see more of, and I would like for that stuff to be kind of, uh, easier for game designers to manage we
0: made we put moon punk on roll 20 but we had to hire somebody to do it for us because it was pretty complex even for like people who knew like knew kind of the basics it was it was pretty complex it is hard to do there's a reason why there's so much stuff for uh wizards of the coast and and paizo on um virtual tabletops and not for smaller games yeah, out there. they definitely. don't have as big of a budget
2: <laughs> definitely but uh but that is something that I would like to see more of especially since um like a lot of people are still playing online these days
0: oh yeah I mean and people are gonna just keep playing online more and more I think often so. definitely I-, I think that there are some strategies you could take that don't necessarily need to be as complex as what's on the virtual tabletops because you could have when you make your pdf Making sure that you have clear links and easily searchable features. With Sebastian, you mentioned Control F something and find it on your PDF. Making sure that you allow your players to do that with your PDF is a really good idea. I've I've downloaded some PDFs that are completely unwieldy in that way.
2: They they didn't yeah they don't have the optical character recognition and so like the um, the PDF reader won't be able to read it. yeah, like, yeah.
0: which is not accessible first of all and also. It just makes your player's life so much harder.
1: Yeah. And frankly, you're not protecting anything because somebody out there is going to crack it and put it down, you know, put it up there for the BitTorrent or whatever anyway. So, like, you're not, yeah. you're not, you're not doing anything magical when you lock your PDF unless you're like have really access to really ridiculous tools to, uh, to, to tighten things down. And why would you? Like, yeah, like that was one of those silly things that uh, get rid of the stupid watermark from Drive Your RPG. I turned that off on all garbage it's, like this this what am i gonna what am i gonna do hunt down everybody who shared the pdf with their players
0: it's better it doesn't better need for your name
1: marked on there
0: it's better for yeah
1: if, let them if have people it. are
0: playing your game that's good for you even if yep. they didn't necessarily but. purchase it
2: yeah, that's yeah. generally my um, philosophy on it. But I think that like the the way to kind of deal with that, if you really don't want piracy, is to just provide a better service than what the pirates can provide, and then yeah. you won't have issues like that.
0: That's a really
1: good point. Yeah, and you can do that in a lot of different ways. You can do that by being somebody who like has a Discord with the community that talks about stuff, so people can come and find out things. And they can come and try out the game. You have, you know, uh, free, uh, st- uh, like you know. Uh, startup rules or, you know, preview rules or whatever, where you can get a little piece of the game for nothing. Um, even if the game itself costs money, like, yeah, there's, you know, <laughs> that that's a whole topic, like yeah. <laughs> wait, think- uh, uh, ways other than the, the game book or deck of cards or whatever it is that makes the game ways to support play of the game that should go into our list of topics for just like a, Broad discussion.
0: I think in in general, it's better for someone to just play your game. They're either going to buy it or they're not. Yep. You, you can't stop them from from yeah. not buying it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd rather them like not buy community and copies and then just say, "Come back, like rate it and leave a comment, please." I would like some feedback.
0: Yeah, the, and those ratings can boost your boost your algorithm, and that algorithm is very important. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: live and die by the algorithm my friends (laughs) oh boy
0: got the last laugh (laughs) (laughs)
1: um yeah just uh just some other things i thought of just not to get into talking about the specifics but some other things that i thought of when it came to like how to uh things to to think about when you're designing that um help players deal with the potential of because it was interesting that you pointed out too um like analysis paralysis isn't just in the moment while playing the character; it's kind of like when building the character too. And and uh, one of the things that kind of plays into that is um, ability trees. You know, where you start with a few choices, and then what path you go down leads you to other choices, and you don't necessarily have a hundred choices to to select from you you decide i'm going to play a character that's kind of thematically this and that's going to help you kind of go down the road you're going to go to and it, it it appears as as trees of abilities um you know feats with prerequisites it subclasses are, are essentially ability trees where you know play d and at third level you get to decide i'm this type of fighter <laughs> and that's going to take you a certain direction which helps to kind of mitigate the, the the sheer number uh, of overwhelm uh, overwhelming choices that you might have to deal with otherwise. Unlike with third edition where like every book came out and every book was usable by every, just like tons and tons of stuff. It got so bogged down where I think fifth edition is a better design for that. And there's plenty of other games that do it as well too, where they, they help to funnel the characters into different places or fun, funnel the players into different areas of the character possibilities. So that's something as a designer, you can keep in mind too. You can present that present your game in that way.
0: Sebastian. do you have any final thoughts?
2: I honestly, I think that like a lot of it just comes down to, um, like the kinds of like peripheral support that you can, that you have, and also just like getting a sense of like what your players want to do, um, <laughs> which honestly is not necessarily like that helpful, but, um, sometimes it just kind of is that simple. Um, yeah
1: that's that's a good point actually knowing as a designer trying to figure out who your audience is who's the audience for this type of game what did what does that audience expect and how much can i push into some other realm w- without like making the audience go huh why <laughs> why is that like that um because yeah and that's for people in the indie realm that can sometimes be you know, like I, I run into it all the time. Like, I don't know what my audience is because I make so many different, weird little niche things that are very different from each other, even though some of them use the same mechanics. I've been told my niche is weird little things that are different from everything else or different. <laughs> yeah, every, everything's different from everything else that I make. That's, that's, I've to, I've had players tell me that's the point. That's why I buy everything from you because I get something new and different every time. It's not just, you know, supplements for the same game. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that there's anything wrong with that i've done supplements for my own games that's fun too
0: uh well just don't fall into analysis paralysis when it comes to designing your own games too there's so <laughs> many options that's a- so many <laughs>
1: options for that
0: to decide sebastian thank you for joining us this has been an interesting conversation yeah thank you so much for having me where can we find you and your stuff
2: uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sebastian UA. So S-E-B-A-S-T-I-A-N-Y-U-E, all one word. I'm I'm Sebastian UA on pretty much everything.
0: Okay, and we'll we'll keep an eye out for this. Untethered, I'll keep an eye out for this when it's when it's ready and you can actually talk about it in more detail. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh you can find me on Twitter and at joska also on Tumblr at, at josca. And on TikTok at Jess is awful, and you can find my games at wannabegames or drive through RPG and itch under wannabe games.
1: And I am Nerd Craig on Twitter and Mastodon. Uh, my website is nerdburgergames.com and uh, everything's over there on Drive Through RPG.
0: Thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sacks, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you, Steph Sacks. And thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye.